as we look at this passage this morning, as you know, we've, we're emphasizing the, the fact that God is the God of truth. And we see that in a couple of places in our passage. A key verse is there in verse 5, where Paul says that he is resisting the, the enslaving teaching of these false brothers so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul wants to maintain the truth of the gospel for the sake of the Galatian Christians that he's ministered among and that now he's writing to in this letter. A little later in the passage, Paul will say that he confronts Peter because Peter's conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel. Again, Paul confronts him and he opposes him because he knows that the gospel is the means of life for God's people. So as we think about Paul's approach to the truth and Paul's approach to even fighting for the truth, we should always remember to connect this fighting for the truth with love. Paul loves these Galatian Christians that he's writing to. He loves the people that he ministers to. And he knows that the best way to love them is with the truth of the gospel. He models for us what it looks like to love others with the gospel by the way he works to preserve the truth of the gospel. That's what we're going to see this morning in our passage. Love calls us to preserve the truth of the gospel by working for gospel unity, by refusing to submit to false gospels, by affirming other gospel teachers and God's gospel work, and by publicly opposing what contradicts the gospel. So that's how we'll organize our time under four points. We preserve the truth of the gospel by first, working for unity around the gospel. Second, resisting false gospels. Third, affirming God's gospel work. And fourth, opposing what contradicts the gospel. I'll repeat those again as we go. But for now, let's go ahead and read the passage. Again, we can find this beginning on page 972 of the Bible's provided, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Paul writes, I should just say, he's continuing an argument he's made about how he was not influenced by the Jerusalem apostles, but now he's going to record what he does when he finally does go to Jerusalem. So that's where we begin with after 14 years in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were, were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, 
that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. One note that might be confusing in there is that Peter is also called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic form of the name Peter, the name that Jesus gave to Simon Barjona back in Matthew. So Cephas, Peter, the same guy, just two different languages, ways to say the name. Our first point then this morning is that we should first work for unity around the gospel. That's the first way we preserve the truth of the gospel is by working for unity around the gospel. And we see Paul doing that here by going to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to pursue gospel unity. He says that he goes up here to make sure that the gospel that he was preached, uh, preaching to the Gentiles, uh, he wasn't running or had not run in vain. Now, given how passionately Paul's asserted the fact that he received the gospel from Jesus himself directly, we shouldn't read Paul here as saying he had some doubts about the truthfulness of his message. Rather, what Paul is doing here is pursuing unity with the other apostles and ensuring that that they're on the same page. He's, He's going to investigate the claims that these teachers who've come into Galatia have made, these claims that the apostles disagree with him. And he wants to clear the air and make sure that he's not running in vain. If there was some division about the gospel and its implications for the Gentiles, then that would make Paul's job much harder, right? If he's going along planting churches, preaching one message, and then Peter is sending messengers were behind him preaching a different message, then that's going to kind of undo what he's done. So he's going to clarify and make sure that he and the other apostles are all on the same page. He goes to Jerusalem, and in the Bible, you often see Jerusalem as being up because it was high in elevation, not because of the way we think of north-south. He goes up to Jerusalem in search of unity with the other apostles around the gospel. His desire for unity not is only the basis of his trip, but he, it, it informs the way that he pursues these conversations. So he doesn't come into Jerusalem shouting down the leaders of the church in public. He says that he sought a private conversation with those who seemed influential, meaning the the leaders of the Jerusalem church, which included both apostles and elders. So Paul is not vying for a blow-up that he can use to boost his image as a champion for truth. He's not trying to fundraise off this meeting, we might say, like a politician does. Rather, he's trying to find unity, and he does find the unity. He reports that he brought this Gentile believer, Titus, with him, a man who was a Gentile and uncircumcised, and he says Titus was not forced to be circumcised. So the Jerusalem leaders agree with Paul, just as we read in Acts 15, that circumcision wasn't something they should burden the Gentile believers with. In this way, we should see how Paul provides an example for us. Look at the value that Paul places 
on the truth of the gospel and unity around that truth. First, the truth of the gospel means that he doesn't seek some kind of unfaithful compromise that would require him to change the message that he's preached to the Gentiles. The purpose of his trip was not to preserve his status as an apostle, so he's going to go down there and just say whatever the apostles tell him to say so that he can still be regarded as one of them. No, he goes down there because he wants to see the truth upheld, the truth that he's heard from Jesus himself. And he's also not out to publicly shame anyone. Again, he seeks this private conversation. And maybe the point is he needs to introduce Titus to the Jerusalem leaders so they can interview him and find out, is this man a genuine believer? He wants to encourage and promote the preaching of the gospel that he's been doing. And he knows that if they're all unified around the same message, it will encourage that. They'll all be preaching the same thing. You might have noticed that we talk a lot about unity around the gospel in our church. We want to be united around this message. We don't want the thing that unites us to be the same things that unite you with your coworkers or your friends at school or your neighbors, right? I mean, literally with your neighbors, the thing that unites you is you just live in the same geographical place, right? You might have things in common with some of them, but you all share a concern that the trash got picked up this week, right? Uh, We want some different kind of unity here in our church. We want it to be clear that we're bound together because Christ has saved us. We want it to be clear that we share this same faith. And we work for this unity because we believe that our our unity around the gospel amplifies the truth of the gospel. When we have a bunch of different people, even from different nations, coming together and saying, this message saved us, we make the gospel all the more clear and bright and glorious. We see this unity on display each week when we take the Lord's Supper. So as we're all eating the the same bread, we're drinking the same cup, we're professing our faith in the gospel to save us. We're saying we're sinners and we need the blood of Christ. We need the body of Christ given for us. We often say that the supper makes many Christians into one body. The unity of of the church around the gospel is on display every time we take the Lord's Supper. We also should work to maintain this unity. That's what Paul commands us to do in Ephesians 4. Seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so if if we do notice some problem or an error in our relationships where someone's you know said something not true or they they've we've we've seen them doing something that looks a little fishy we normally shouldn't begin trying to work that out in public, right? You don't stand up on a Sunday night and say, I saw so-and-so do such-and-such, right? We begin that work privately. We begin by asking questions, right? We say, brother or sister, I, I heard you say this. Did I, did I hear you right? What did you mean by that? Or I thought I saw this. What, what was going on? We give the benefit of the doubt. We work behind the scenes for gospel unity. And if there is some sin to be confronted or error to be corrected, we seek to do that with gentleness and love and a a desire to see our brothers and sisters restored to faith in the gospel. We approach those conversations knowing that we too are, are fallible sinners. We're prone to error. We need to be corrected by the truth of the gospel. And we're utterly dependent on the grace of Christ. We can imagine this encounter between Paul and the Jerusalem church going another way, 
Right? Imagine Paul going straight to Jerusalem and straight to the temple grounds. And he stands up there and he starts preaching loudly against the law of Moses. Imagine how the Jerusalem church leaders would have felt had that happened. Right? They would have felt maybe attacked and backed into a corner. They might have had church members who had been there hearing Paul lambast the law and coming to them saying, you know, Peter, James, John, you, you told us it was okay if we still practiced some of our Jewish rituals. And, and now Paul's coming in here and he's attacking us. Well, who's right? right? Who, who's right? You or them? Imagine how confused the churches might have become if Paul had started off trying to pick a fight in public. That's not what Paul did. He wanted to establish their unity around the gospel. So he meets privately to make sure that they all understand the same message. And it's, it's good news. They do. They do share it. They agree on how the gospel should be proclaimed and applied to the Gentiles. They're preaching the same thing. And what a blessing this is for the church. How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. They agree they don't just agree, they agree around the truth. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Salvation is not found in keeping the law of Moses. Sinners are only declared righteous by faith in the work of Jesus. And so Paul was preserving the truth of the gospel by working for gospel unity. But the second way we preserve the truth of the gospel is by resisting false gospels. We've already touched on this, but Paul recounts that in this private meeting with the Jerusalem leaders, he says that, that some false brothers crept in, slipped in. Now, it's unclear exactly what's going on. Did, were there some, some folks at that meeting who maybe shouldn't have been? Or was there a private meeting and then a public meeting or a series of meetings? It, it's, it's not really clear. But, but it is clear that Paul says these false brothers, these pseudo-brothers, were trying to enslave him and Titus, instead of allowing them to be free in Christ. Paul's very clear about that part of it. He says later in the book that there is slavery and freedom. There's the freedom that the gospel brings and the freedom that the promises bring. And there's slavery, both slavery to the law of Moses that produces death. And there's slavery, he says, to the elemental principles of this world. So really, I think, getting at our idolatries. So whether Jews or Gentiles, at one point, everyone who's now a Christian was once enslaved to something, and the gospel has set us free. Paul says that though these false brothers are trying to re-enslave him and Titus, but that he resisted. When we get to that part of the letter where Paul's talking about freedom, he makes it clear that we're freed, but we're not freed from good works freed from love, right? He actually says, no, we're freed, and we're not to use our freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but in our freedom, we're to serve one another in love. So Paul's freedom is not some sort of antinomianism. It's not a freedom to do whatever we want, but it's a freedom from trying to save ourselves through the good works of the law. It's a freedom from sin and death. And he, he resists, he says, those who might try to bring any Christians into slavery. The slavery, as we've noted before, adds something to the gospel. In this case, it would have been observance of the Jewish law. An enslaving gospel is when a teacher says to you, you must do X or Y to become a Christian or to remain a Christian. 
But that X or Y is just an, an addition that the gospel says nothing about. I'm sure that we can think of things like this in our own lives where you know someone or maybe you were in a church once to where there were things that were added to the gospel. There was a brother I was sort of discipling when I was in college. He was a freshman and he was a sweet guy and, and he had lots of friends and he had a group of friends who believed in, in sinless perfectionism and they were trying to get him to go along with that and he often struggled with you know feeling am I not really a Christian because I, I'm not like them I'm not pursuing this life of perfectionism they were burdening him with a false gospel we had lots of talks about why you should reject that false gospel that's not true we might know how the the Roman Catholic Church tells people to to really be a Christian. You have to commune through them. You have to receive the sacraments and the grace of God through the Roman Church in order to be a Christian. They're adding something to the gospel. Some of us may have had experience with more fundamentalist kinds of churches where there are certain rules added, maybe unwritten rules, but rules nonetheless. I mean, maybe rules against wives working outside the home or the kind of clothes they should wear or the kind of media you should consume or how kids are educated. Very often the way enslaving messages come today is in the form of charismatic or authoritarian leaders. I don't mean like charismatic, the denomination, but just vibrant, popular leaders that seem very persuasive. And they say to a church, it's my way or the highway. And people like their teaching. They see them growing a crowd. And so for a while, at least, they follow along before they realize they're being burdened and enslaved with these extra requirements. These false teachers say to be saved, you must not only rely on Christ, but you must obey me. But Christ says salvation comes simply and freely. It comes by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. The good news of the gospel says, to be saved, you do not have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to stop cussing first. You don't have to read the Bible end to end first. Rather, you must believe. Believe that you stand guilty before God because of your sin, but believe that Christ forgives your sin, that through his death on the cross, he paid the price your sin deserves, and that you can have life through him. This is the message that frees us from sin and death. And Christians are to walk in that freedom and joy. Because of Jesus, we have fellowship with God. We've been set free from our bondage to our sin. Paul says in verse 5 that he did not yield in submission even for a moment to those false brothers. He resisted their enslaving gospel. He says he did this so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Paul understood at this moment it was crucial not to yield to their enslaving rules. It's interesting the wisdom Paul displays here. At other times he'll say that to the Jews he became as a Jew. Even though he wasn't under the law, it was evangelistically helpful for him, at least, to observe those laws. But here he understands the situation is crucial. Here he must stand firm and not adopt their yoke because to do so is going to cloud the gospel for his Galatian brothers and sisters. He would have confused or even lost the gospel had he done it at this point. 
the Gentiles he was ministering to would have been led to believe that they had to follow those old Jewish customs to be saved. And so here he must resist the enslaving false gospel in order to preserve the gospel. It's not often, but there will be times where we find ourselves in those situations where a popular teaching arises in our church, and before long it seems like everyone in the church is convinced that to be a true Christian, you must do this or that. I've been in churches where it started to seem like to be a true Christian, you had to be involved in foster care ministry. Or to be a true Christian, you had to move overseas. Or to be a true Christian, I've heard from other churches where you have to be part of the street evangelism team. But many of those things are good things, right? And I hope that our church is full of Christians whom the Lord leads to do those things. To preach the gospel, to go to the nations, to care for the widows and orphans. We should be doing some of those things. The gospel should give us a heart for those people. But for the sake of preserving the gospel, if we're in a church where those things become part of the gospel, we may have to stand up and say, no, those activities don't make you a Christian. We must work to preserve the gospel by resisting enslaving gospels. If you think about these first two points, they kind of seem a little contradictory. In the first part where uh, on the first point, we're building unity, right? Working behind the scenes, building unity. And here, at least it seems Paul has, is building some disunity, right? I'm not like those guys who want to re-enslave people. And there are times where we will need to stand. How do we know when which is which? Well, to start, it will help if we know the gospel. If we know and cherish the gospel then we're going to be sensitive to anyone adding to the gospel. We'll know someone who's preaching something and say, that's not the gospel that saves. That's a man-made gospel. And when we know and cherish the gospel, we'll also be able to know how to find unity with others in the gospel. We'll know the gospel when we see it, and we'll be ready to rejoice with those who preached it. We'll rejoice when we see the gospel preached. And that leads us to our next point. We preserve the gospel by affirming God's gospel work. So we're kind of getting into an A-B pattern here. First we work for the unity of the gospel, then we have to stand up to false gospels, and now again we're affirming God's gospel work. In verses 6 through 9, Paul says that the leaders of Jerusalem saw that God had entrusted him with the gospel to the Gentiles, and they saw that God had given grace to Paul, And so they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They recognized God's grace and God's call on Paul's life. The right hand of fellowship is not just the handshake. It's a kind of formal recognition that Paul had the true gospel and that he was a legitimate apostle. They were recognizing what God had done in him. Now, Paul does continue to go out of his way here to say that they added nothing to him. And by this, he's not diminishing the importance of their fellowship. Rather, he's saying they didn't teach him a new gospel. They didn't add to his understanding of the gospel. They affirmed that he was preaching the true gospel. So the gospel that Paul had received, that the Galatians had received through him, that was it. So Paul didn't get anything new by this visit to Jerusalem. What he received was their reception, that they affirmed what God was doing through him. 
they recognized his apostolic ministry. They agreed with what he was saying. And they were saying that Paul had simply taken the message that they had preached, and he was preaching it among them. Now notice how this is going against what, what we deduce were the accusations against Paul. The accusations against Paul in Galatia was that he was kind of a, a bad pupil from Jerusalem. Everything he got, he got from Jerusalem, and what he was saying, he wasn't saying very well. He was mangling their message. And Paul is saying, no, I didn't get it from Jerusalem, and actually those guys agree with me completely. We're all on the same page. There's no difference between us. So the truth of the gospel is there, and these brothers affirm what Paul is doing. It's important to note that these leaders in affirming Paul are recognizing what God has done. So verse 7 says that they saw that the gospel had been entrusted to me. It's in the passive, but we see it must have been God who entrusted Paul with his gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem leaders saw that. In verse 9, Paul says, they perceived the grace that had been given to Paul. So they perceived God's grace given to Paul, and so they gave their hand in fellowship. These leaders weren't blinded by their pride or their desire to kind of protect their own turf as the apostles. They had eyes to see God's work, and they were happy to recognize it in Paul. In this way, verses 1 through 10 come in full circle. Paul goes down to Jerusalem to seek unity with them, and now the Jerusalem leaders rejoice to affirm Paul's ministry. So how does this apply to us? We're not in the situation of the Jerusalem apostles. What does it mean to affirm gospel and affirm God's gospel work? Well, we can see this in play in our lives in a few ways. First, when we receive new church members, we're doing something similar to what the Jerusalem leaders did for Paul. We're looking at a person's life and we're looking for evidence. Do they have the truth of the gospel? Do they profess the right message? And do we see evidence of the gospel at work in their life? We see grace in their life. We look for those things and then when we vote on them as a member, we're affirming that. We're affirming that they profess the true gospel that we also profess and that there's evidence that they're seeking to live their life in a way that, that honors Christ. They're seeking to live in repentance and faith each day. And so we're extending to them the right hand of fellowship when we receive them into membership in our church. We've examined their confession, we've examined their life, and now we're receiving them. We're affirming what God has done in their lives. This is one of the responsibilities God gives to his church. You kind of see the opposite of it when we remove someone from church membership. Because of their unrepentant sin, we're, we're reversing the decision. And we're, we're not casting that person into hell. We're simply saying we, we can no longer publicly affirm that this person is representing Christ with their life. And maybe just because we don't, we don't really know them anymore. They've drifted away from us and, and aren't attending anymore. When we take on this work as a church, we're preserving the gospel. We're saying that there is only one gospel and it is to be believed and lived out. When the gospel has taken over a person's life, there will be evidence of it. And so we preserve the gospel by affirming God's gospel work in a person's life. A similar thing happens when we elect a man as an elder in our church or a pastor. We're looking at a man's teaching and its fruit. We're saying, does he communicate the gospel truthfully? 
Are the, the members who hear the gospel from him, are they helped by his ministry of the word? And then we're looking at his life. Is he above reproach? Does his life match up with his confession? Is there evidence that God has given him grace? So we, if we recognize him as an elder, we're affirming what God has done in his life. We're affirming the gospel he preaches and the gospel he lives. We should be eager to do this and to recognize God's work when we see it. And we should be careful when we do it. We should do it soberly when we evaluate a man's life and ministry. And we can extend this work even out to affirming others who work in ministry. So if we decide to support a new missionary, well, how will we examine them? We want to know the gospel that they preach. We want to know that they have a good reputation. Maybe they come from another church that can affirm that their life matches up with the gospel. We want to rejoice when we see the gospel proclaimed. We try to model this in the way that we pray for other gospel-preaching churches in our area and in other parts of the country. Or we pray for our sister Megan and her gospel ministry among college students. We preserve the gospel by celebrating it when we see it proclaimed, by encouraging it, by praying for it, by financially supporting it. We preserve the gospel by affirming God's gospel work. It seems like one of the favorite hobbies that evangelicals have is pointing out what's wrong with us, what's wrong with evangelicalism. And there's plenty you can point to, right? But evangelicalism at its best is this kind of gospel-affirming work here, where we see what God is doing and we rejoice in it, the way that these Jerusalem apostles affirmed Paul's gospel work. You know, pollsters want to make evangelicalism a political movement. Sometimes we want to make it into a cultural movement. But at its heart, what it was was a gospel movement. That's what the word means. It's a gospel word. And so we want to see the truth of the gospel proclaimed and lived throughout the world. So even if maybe someday we forsake the label, I hope by God's grace we will always be an evangelical people, a gospel people who wants to promote and see God's gospel work throughout the world. Paul's clear that the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to his gospel, but he was encouraged by their affirmation and fellowship. Otherwise, he wouldn't have included it in his letter. It was important enough for him to tell the Galatians about. They affirmed me. They witnessed the grace of God in me. They extended fellowship to me. We can affirm the gospel in a similar way, in our church, in our city, and around the world, by affirming in and rejoicing in God's gospel work where we see it. So we've looked at three ways we preserve the gospel, the truth of the gospel. By working for unity, by resisting false gospels, and by affirming God's gospel work. The final way, it's going back to our ABAB pattern. We're now back to a negative way. We preserve the truth of the gospel by opposing whatever contradicts the gospel. And we see this in 11 through 14. I'll just read a couple of those verses. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This is a shocking turn of events. Two apostles, an open confrontation. When Paul had been concerned to go privately before the elders and leaders in Jerusalem, now it's open opposition to Peter. Why the change? Why has this dispute gone public? 
Well, there's a few things to observe. First, Peter's actions were very public to the whole church. Everyone could witness the way he was behaving before those people from Jerusalem came and after. The Jewish law forbade ritually pure Jews from eating with Gentiles. It made you unclean. And so out of fear of these Jewish brothers, Peter hypocritically stopped eating with his Gentile brothers in Christ in order to appease them and so they wouldn't offend them. And Peter's actions were open for all to see. Everyone could just clearly witness, hey, one day you did this, and then these guys came, and the next day you're doing something different. One day he's coming to the church fellowship meal, the next day he's not, or he's setting up a special Jewish section over here. So that's first, it was public. Second, and most importantly, it was clearly out of step with the gospel. Peter sa uh, Paul says that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel in verse 14. So his, his conduct is clearly anti-gospel. And how is that? Well, we know from Paul's letter to the Ephesians that the gospel has torn down the wall that divides Jews and Gentiles. Christ has made one new man where before there was this divided uh, people. So Jesus has accomplished something glorious on the cross, right? There's no longer Jew and Gentile. Now there are just sinners who have been declared righteous. Now there are just people who were once enemies of God who are now friends of God and sons of God. But by his example, Paul says that Peter is forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. Peter's actions are saying to his Gentile brothers, we can't have fellowship unless you convert to Judaism and become ritually pure. To be with me, you need the gospel plus the law of Moses. And Paul is not having to read the tea leaves or to peer into the depths of Peter's soul to know this. He's watching it unfold before his eyes. He says Peter stood condemned because of what he'd done, his unwillingness to fellowship with his brothers in Christ. Finally, Peter's actions led others astray. Paul even said his close companion Barnabas was drawn astray and acting hypocritically. And Peter is hugely influential. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He's considered a leader of the apostles. And he's causing this huge rift in this new church in Antioch. All because of his fear of what these Jewish brothers from Jerusalem will say. He's dividing the church and leading men astray from the gospel. Again, the gospel's made one new man. And Peter's now making one man two again. He's dividing what God has made one. He's tearing down what Christ has built. So for all these reasons, the rebuke needs to be open. Barnabas and the others who've been led astray, they need to hear what Paul has to say. It's not the time for private conversations. Paul's already told us in verse 6 that God shows no partiality, and so now Paul is going to act like God. He's not going to show any partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. Peter won't get any special treatment. You've you sinned in this grievous way publicly. Now you must be publicly opposed. I think we can infer from the silence on Peter's part that he didn't argue. He knows he's in the wrong. We could add here that it seems like it's a happy ending. Like later, Peter will affirm Paul as a dear brother in 2 Peter. But Paul's example provides three tests for us to know how or know whether we should publicly oppose another brother in Christ. And first, we, to, to, to test these things, we can say first, the first test is this. Is it public? Was their sin public? Or was their, their gospel-denying public? 
We don't need to go public when a brother says something strange or does something strange in private, right? That's a reason for more private conversations. But when it's public, a public response might be in order. Second, is it clear? We're not having to, to assign motives or read between the lines. We publicly oppose something when the thing we've heard is clearly anti-gospel, something that clearly contradicts the gospel. So that's test number two. Is it clear? Third, is this false gospel persuasive or influential among my brothers and sisters? There's a lot that is said publicly that is anti-gospel, right? In the internet age, we are all just one weird chat room away from heretical things, right? Public heresy is everywhere. But by God's grace, most of us are blissfully unaware of the weird chat rooms, aren't we? We can easily avoid them. So there's a lot that we'll be able to ignore, that we don't have to publicly oppose because it's just irrelevant or unknown in our church. But occasionally, there may be things that creep into our fellowship that become influential. So that's test number three. Is this false gospel persuasive or influential among my brothers and sisters? In Peter's case, his offense met all three tests. It was public, clear, and it was having a huge influence on this church in Antioch. What a terrible thing this must have been for this church to go through. But what a blessed thing that Paul is willing to oppose Peter and to recover the truth of the gospel. And as we said before, Peter eventually will refer to Paul as his beloved brother. He's corrected. The apostle Peter receives correction and submits to Paul's rebuke. Now, if we were to apply our test to a real-world situation, we might point to the prosperity gospel as a a piece of low-hanging fruit. We could identify something we should oppose publicly. So let's just apply our tests. We're talking about preachers like Joel Osteen or Paula White or Joyce Myers that we see on TV. These preachers basically say that all God wants to do is unlock your hidden potential and make your dreams come true. Their preaching is very public. right? It's so public that you can't even hardly avoid it. You can be flipping the channels and find them on a variety of places, right? So their teaching is public, and it clearly contradicts the gospel. They might give lip service to the true gospel, but their real message is a message that diminishes the need for repentance and the grace of Christ, and it doesn't provide any true gospel comfort for those who are suffering. Their real message actually enslaves us to following our own desires, because they seem to just put a kind of a divine stamp on whatever you want and say, God will give you that if you just trust him enough. So their their teaching is public. It's clearly anti-gospel. We might wonder if it passes the third test. Is their message influential among my brothers and sisters here in our church? Well, we should hope not. But I fear that we're all tempted to some degree by the prosperity gospel. I mentioned this thing last week, that maybe not the Joel Osteen gospel, but the Benjamin Franklin gospel, that if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, you know, God will reward you. Much of our discontentment comes because we believe we are owed some blessing by God, which is essentially a soft version of the prosperity gospel. We are around the prosperity gospel so much, it's like we're secondhand smokers of the prosperity gospel. So even if our church is protected from it, Many of our neighbors who are sharing the gospel with, they will have been influenced by it. So we can say that its influence is close to home. 
So for that reason, I think we can say the prosperity gospel passes all three tests. It's something we should occasionally publicly oppose. And we should especially oppose it if we, if we meet a friend who seems to be being drawn astray by it. And we should hope that it's rare to have to call out false gospels, especially within our local church. But again, many of us can tell stories of things that we've seen personally or heard from friends about things they've experienced in churches. False teachers arise and they divide churches. Again, especially in the age of the internet, these things can seep in. Sometimes they're new ideas, often they're just rewarmed old ideas that gain popularity among a particular group. And when they arise, and when they start to draw our friends and brothers and sisters away, we should oppose them. But we should note the importance of this last test about influence. Paul's example here does not make us the watchdogs of every other church. So we want to watch out for making public opposition to falsehood a hobby. We need to remember where we began, that preserving the truth of the gospel should be motivated by love. Preserving the truth of the gospel, then, is not primarily a negative work. It's not just resisting and opposing. It's working behind the scenes for unity. It's affirming God's gospel work wherever we see it. We work to preserve the truth of the gospel because it saves. The gospel saves. Through the message of Christ crucified for sinners, we can know God's love for us. It's the only way our friends and neighbors can know God's love for them and find life. So this passage asks us, do I know the gospel? Do I cherish the gospel? And am I working to preserve the truth of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have left us your word and that it is full of instruction for us. We pray that we would indeed be a gospel people, that we would devote ourselves to this good news. We pray for boldness when necessary to resist enslaving false gospels, even to publicly oppose them when they crop up. Father, we thank you that the gospel has been preserved for us through brothers like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Thank you for the words of the New Testament that point us to Christ, that give us the words of life. We pray for your help to cling to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.